Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 48. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on November 18th, 2021, in Austin, Texas. This episode is a sidebar, announcements and some news from History Twitter. As long-standing listeners know, a sidebar is an episode off the timeline. The main announcement is that I am basically taking a week off. Much as I wished to move along the timeline this week, I had several setbacks, including my first bad cold in not just two years, but three years, plus a larger-than-normal dose of paying work. The cold, which is definitely not the COVID, has handicapped the podcasting in several respects, not least of which is that a stuffy nose makes it a lot harder to smoke cigars. It turns out that I write about three times faster chomping on a cigar than chain-drinking Diet Cokes, so the cold is a big hit to productivity. I do have a few things to report and even get off my chest, however, so I hope you stick around for this somewhat less scripted and not very historical digression. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. We believe there's dignity in our national story, along with tragedy, triumph, brilliance, hypocrisy, magnificence, depravity, corruption, venality, inspiration, oppression, genius, defeat, and glory. Mostly, we hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, write us a nice review on Apple or wherever you like writing reviews, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. This is, as oft reported, a labor of love, and your support is all the motivation I need. We'll start with a little victory lap. We've crossed 89,000 aggregate downloads since inception, which wildly exceeds my expectations. Most of our listeners are in the United States, but we've had hundreds of downloads in a dozen foreign countries, including most of the Anglosphere. In the United States, we have regular listeners in every state, with a top 10 reasonably close to order by population. Texas leads the pack, which makes sense, since I have a lot of friends here, and the Cabeza de Vaca series is of considerable local interest. Followed by... California, Illinois, Florida, New York, Georgia, North Carolina, Massachusetts, Virginia, and Pennsylvania. I have to say I'm a little bit disappointed in Virginia, where my mother and brother live, and there's a lot of history buffs. But perhaps the Old Dominion will move up the league table once we get to Jamestown. The most touching feedback is not numbers but the emails that many of you have sent and the reviews that people have written, some of which are so generous, they make me blush. On those rare occasions when I wonder whether I am spending too much time on this podcast, the nice things people say keep me going. So keep saying them. I now have a moderately active Twitter account, the title of which is The History of the Americans, one long word. The Twitter handle is goofy, at the history of TH2. That's at 
the history of TH2. I don't know why it came out that way. I can't even remember why I set it up that way. If you use Twitter, please consider following along. But if you don't use Twitter, don't take it up on my account. I don't need your brain damage added to my long list of sins. When I have announcements to make, which will usually have to do with taking a week off or maybe a new swag design, I'll make it on Twitter or on the Facebook page, which you can find by searching for the History of the Americans podcast or going to facebook.com slash history of the Americans. These are my only two social propaganda vehicles, and they seem to be working out pretty well. Anyway, I follow a couple of hundred professional historians on Twitter and sometimes mix it up with them a bit online. For all I know, maybe a couple of them have turned into listeners, although I kind of doubt it. sort of history that I do is not very much in vogue in academic circles today, and I don't think I take it seriously enough for some of these people who can be very serious. Not surprisingly, history Twitter skews young. Graduate students and mostly younger professors go on at length about the controversies roiling American history at the moment, mostly in supportive agreement with each other. Generalizing just from looking at tweets over the last few weeks, the younger generation of professional historians have three things in common. They are a bundle of anxiety over their workloads in the job market, which is fair enough because these are parlous times for future professors, especially in the humanities. They really don't like Gordon Wood, the famous historian of the American Revolution, and they are contemptuous of the new academic startup, the University of Austin, to which I will return briefly. Regarding Gordon Wood, how many historians make it into the movies? It's going to last until next year. You're going to be in here regurgitating Gordon Wood, talking about, you know, the pre-revolutionary utopia and the capital-forming effects of military mobilization. Well, as a matter of fact, I won't, because Wood drastically underestimates the impact Wood of social Wood drastically underestimates the impact of social distinctions predicated upon wealth, especially inherited wealth. You got that from Vickers. So there you have it. Gordon Wood is such a big gun that 23 years ago, he was a casual reference in a Hollywood script that won the Academy Award for Best Screenplay that year. On November 27th, he will be 88 years old, and he is still going strong, having turned out a new book, Power and Liberty, Constitutionalism in the American Revolution, just this year. He has written or edited something like 25 books in the American Revolutionary Era in the Early Republic and won both the Pulitzer Prize and, more impressively, in my opinion, the Bancroft Prize. Anyway, searching on Gordon Wood in Twitter, I came up with a tiny selection of the things that History Twitter has said about Gordon Wood in just the last couple of weeks. Love this takedown of Gordon Wood and how he blatantly invisibilizes the experiences of non-white people. He is totally uninterested in them and his never-ending quest to center white elites in the story of the American Revolution. Remember sitting in a history class in Ayers Hall, the prof started into the weeds and some Gordon Wood dropped that class, never looked back. I was at a dinner, cocktail hour, asked him if he would be interested in reading the women Jefferson loved. He looked at me as if I'd spit in his drink. During this 
Native American Heritage Month, we historians are falling all over ourselves talking about Gordon Wood and the American Revolution. This would make the ex-president ecstatic. Meaning, of course, Donald Trump, who I guarantee you has no idea who Gordon Wood is. Gordon Wood and Alan Guelzo should just get over it and have their long-dreamt-of foursome with the corpses of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. American historians could then concentrate on actual historical problems. And so on and so forth. In fairness, Professor Wood has his tweeting defenders, too. But there's no getting around that he is wildly unpopular on history Twitter, notwithstanding his long career and many professional accolades. The question is why? Not being a professional historian or in the academic mix, I'm quite sure that I cannot understand all the reasons for hating on Wood. Some of it is probably just a version of a common problem in academic history, that the number of people majoring in history in American universities has fallen by 75% in the last 30 years, and as a result, there just aren't very many jobs for historians. Professors who stay in their jobs into their late 80s, however productive they remain, are seen as taking a slot that could be filled by a young and unemployed scholar. There are at least three other reasons, however, for the anti-Wood snark. The first is that he practices an old-school institutional history, and he quite likes the American Founding Fathers. For reasons that are far outside the scope of this episode, but we will probably get to eventually, liking our Founding Fathers is quite out of fashion in academic circles today. Second, there is the view, and I have not done the work to confirm that I agree with it one way or the other, that Professor Wood is not very interested in the contributions of marginalized people to the American Revolution and the early American Republic. The overwhelming majority of American historians of the rising generation, say people under the age of 45, are keenly interested in such things. In this context, Professor Wood is a fossil. Nearly as I can tell, however, the big reason there is so much contempt for Wood among Twitter history is that he is vocally opposed to weaponizing history to support contemporary political arguments. Longstanding listeners will remember my various rants on that topic, the most detailed of which came toward the end of episode 25, Taking Stock. Now, Wood does not generally describe this phenomenon as weaponizing history, a term that I did not invent but have used. He may have at some point or another used it. Wood uses a gentler term, usable history, by which he means the desire that history be used to accomplish some contemporary objective. In his footnote on page 190 of his most recent book, Wood states his position as clearly as it can be stated. Right from the beginning of professional history writing in the early decades of the 20th century, James Harvey Robinson and his collaborators emphasized the need for a usable past, they criticized their predecessors for overemphasizing the past at the expense of the present, and they called for a new history that could help reform the present. What Robinson and his colleagues wanted was the kind of usable history, an instrumentalist history, that could meet the political and social needs of the present. This was perhaps not an unworthy aim, but it is one that can be easily abused, and it often has been abused, especially in the academic history writing of the present day.
I quite agree with Wood and explain why in episode 25, among other places. But to history Twitter, Dems fighting words. Nearly as I can tell, a large number of young historians are explicitly concerned with changing the world today. That is what motivates them. As long-standing listeners know, I believe that ambition comes at a price. First, the quest for a usable history actually hurts understanding. Whether a historian is trying to promote national greatness, as some people unfairly accuse would of doing, or a modern conception of social justice, the very condition of pitching a political argument is, as always, designed to persuade the reader or listener to take a side, rather than to teach the student to think for herself, himself, or themselves. Second, it degrades the credibility of the practice of history. If history becomes the mere mining of the historical record for facts or factoids to support partisan politics today, then history is inherently no more credible than any other politicized opinion factory, like Fox News or the New York Times. Third, the quest for usability makes history predictable and therefore tedious. If I know the point the historian wants to make in the service of the social change to which he or she aspires, then it is a lot less likely that historian will ever surprise me. The response to my argument is obvious, that it is impossible to eliminate the politics of today and the writing of history. And therefore, one might as well admit that objectivity is impossible, confess one's orientation, and use history to your preferred end. Which critics essentially accuse him of fraud, insofar as he denounces usable history and then disingenuously writes it and all he does. This, such people might say, is white privilege in action, the self-deception that there can be such a thing as objectivity. There is some truth in that. In the formative years of professors who are today almost 90, the vast majority of professional historians were white men, and that condition no doubt influenced their scholarship in most, if not every case. That is virtually impossible to deny. However, neither is that the end of the discussion. There is a difference between striving for objectivity and failing, on the one hand, and bending one's scholarship explicitly to winning a political argument on the other. At its most extreme, it is the difference between struggling to maintain an open mind, and really that is all we mere humans can even hope to do, and closing one's mind. I believe that the now thousands of listeners of this podcast understand that there is a profound difference between genuinely trying to keep one's mind open and making no attempt at all. If the point of your scholarship is to make a political argument, you are making no attempt at all to keep your mind open. That is what Wood means when he says that instrumentalist history can be easily abused and it often has been abused. Wood also attacks presentism, which is a related but subtly different point from usable or instrumentalist history. Presentism is the uncritical adherence to present-day attitudes, especially the tendency to interpret past events in terms of modern values and concepts. Here again, let's look at a footnote in Wood's most recent book, this time on page 191. Quote, 
Some recent American historians have become so used to denigrating America's past in terms of present values that they can't help slipping into anachronism. Alan Taylor, for example, in his big book on American revolutions, concludes that because the colonial legislatures denied women, free blacks, and propertyless white males the vote, colonial America was a poor place to look for democracy. But where else in the world in the mid-18th century was there a better place to look for democracy? For context, that footnote of Woods ties to these paragraphs. Quote, In 1765, the British electorate made up only a tiny proportion of the nation. Probably only one in six British adult males had the right to vote. Still, that was a larger electorate than any place on the continent, which was why Britain prided itself on its House of Commons. There was nothing like it anywhere in Europe. The colonies had an even broader electorate for their provincial assemblies, their miniature parliaments. As many as two out of three adult white males could vote. Certainly this was not democratic by modern standards, since slaves and women and propertyless white males could not vote. But it was certainly the largest percentage of voters of any people in the world at that time. As long-standing listeners know, I think it is fine to stop there. There is no need to say that this made our ancestral colonies democracies or alternatively poor places to look for democracy. It so happens that neither is true. The American colonies were not democracies as that term is widely understood. But by the standards of the time, they were far ahead of their time and therefore not a particularly poor place to look for democracy either. Insisting on a particular label, democracy or not, obscures our understanding of the point rather than clarifying it. There's a much bigger and more passionate argument happening right now, in part because of the famous 1619 project of the New York Times. There are a great many people, including on History Twitter, who characterized the original United States Constitution as, quote, pro-slavery, and those who would say it was fundamentally anti-slavery taking the other side. The arguments on this point in either direction are detailed, tendentious, and far beyond the scope of at least this episode. My objection is to the urge to assign a suitable for Twitter label in the first place. The Constitution in its original form was a negotiated compromise between the states, some of which were deeply committed to chattel slavery and some of which were edging toward abolition of it. The compact that resulted from that negotiation both acknowledged slavery and to some degree conferred extra power to states with many people held in bondage, and it contained the potential for its abolition. People today want to sweep away that complexity and slap a pro or anti-slavery label on our Constitution are not nearly as interested in understanding what actually happened with an open mind as they are in confirming their political priors. They want to put that label on it. Rest assured, we will try our best not to do that in this podcast, however imperfect our trying may be. Regarding the announced startup University of Austin, dig around online to learn more about it if you're interested. 
The reaction on history Twitter has been hostile, including plenty of mockery and at least a few accusations that its point is to promote white supremacy, which, nearly as I can tell, is a crock. I suppose I have several quick observations, which may or may not turn out to be correct. First, universities are always established with some higher purpose. Many of our leading centers of learning began at least as religious projects or with some exalted secular ambition. Well, the stated purpose of the University of Austin is the dedicated pursuit of truth. I see no reason to believe that is some sort of lie or deception until it's revealed as such, and only the passage of time can possibly do that. Second, we need innovation in higher education. Few sectors of the American economy change more slowly than our schools at every level. Even the anxious young scholars on History Twitter implicitly acknowledge as much when they lament the shortage of tenure-track jobs and the old professors hanging around doing scholarship or not in old ways. Which, of course, brings me to the third point. If I were an unemployed or underemployed young scholar, I'd want all the new university startups I could get. Even if I did not want to work at the University of Austin, I'd be delighted to take the previous job of some other scholar who does. I certainly wouldn't be taking shots on Twitter and trying to tear it down the week it's announced. Okay, rant over. If after all of that there are academic historians still listening, which I doubt, and if you are going to the annual meeting of the American Historical Association in New Orleans in early January, please contact me by some means, either via the contact page on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. I am going to the meeting and would love to buy you drinks and hash some of this stuff out face to face. As many of you know, my father was professor of history at the University of Iowa. Go Hawks! I always had mixed feelings about the AHA annual meeting because back then it was often held, in fact always held, I think, during the week after Christmas, probably because hotel rooms were cheap and historians don't get paid very much. Since my birthday's that week, I figure the AHA owes me a couple. Now the meeting has moved to the first week in January, so I'm going to attend and make some trouble for myself. As devoted and attentive listeners have no doubt figured out, I have my own rack in New Orleans, and it happens to be walking distance from the AHA Convention Hotel. I might even wear one of my presentism-forbidden t-shirts once I size up the situation. Or maybe not. I don't want to get kicked out. Okay, now for a few things I like, other than, obviously... Francis Drake. Among history podcasts, I do rather enjoy the history of England, which I have previously reported is the closest inspiration for the History of the Americans podcast. I also quite like Ben Franklin's world and tune in when time allows to these others in no particular order. Michael Troy's American Revolution podcast, The American Story, Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, Civics and Coffee, The History of North America with Mark Vinette, The Age of Jackson podcast, and A New History of Old Texas. I'll put links in the show notes to this episode. I confess, I do not much go in for overproduced history podcasts with lots of sound effects and people acting out imagined dialogue and 21st century accents, but that's just me. Your results may vary. 
Regarding non-history podcasts, I like eclectic stuff that will challenge my assumptions. There's a wonderful little podcast called Nudie Reads by an Australian friend of mine. She reads a delightful short passage from history or from some document or from literature and associates some commentary. Nudie has a wonderful voice and a great accent, if you're American, and there is always something new there. I also like the politically homeless, nonpartisan podcasters who really do not much like either political party. In this category, my two favorites are the Reason Roundtable, which is always interesting and out of the box, and the Fifth Column. I also very much like Making Sense from Sam Harris and Andrew Sullivan's Dishcast. I occasionally dip into Walk-In's Welcome with Bridget Phetasy, The Prof G Show with Scott Galloway, and Honestly with Barry Weiss, in each case, depending on the guest. To be absolutely clear, I am not shilling for any of these folks, nor suggesting that I agree with everything they say. I do think, however, that none of them are predictable in their opinions, which means they are interesting compared to explicitly partisan podcasters. I, too, hope that I'm not predictable and that all y'all listeners enjoy that aspect of the History of the Americans podcast. In the coming weeks, we will get back to the timeline. I do plan an off-timeline Thanksgiving sidebar special next week, which I hope will be interesting. Then in the next few weeks, we will look at Drake's legacy, sadly the very last Drake episode, and that will include an interesting story of historians weaponizing history more than a hundred years ago. Then an episode on Spain's expeditions to the Southwest in the 1580s and 1590s. And then on to the next English colonization on the Atlantic coast, including the Popham colony on the coast of Maine, I bet some of you didn't know about that. I didn't. And of course, Jamestown. I will probably take a true week off in the first half of December because I have a lot of business travel and other commitments that will make it difficult to maintain a weekly cadence. But since doing this podcast is pretty much the most fun I have, I expect to pump out at least weekly episodes during the holidays. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, pats on the back, or invitations to cocktail parties on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time.